0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those red books right in front of you and turn to page 550. 550. Luke chapter 12. As you're turning there, just a, a few, uh, just piggybacking on some of those announcements. I think they're they're really relevant and important uh, today. Number one, uh, of course, this Tuesday, a decorating party. If you're interested, come at five. We would love to have you. It's always wonderful to get the church ready for Christmas. That's on Tuesday night. Sunday is a special day. Next Sunday, 9 a.m. in the fireside room. I encourage all of you to come. We're going to have child care for the youngest of children and a little light breakfast for everyone, but we're going to have uh, many of our missionaries in the fireside room right over there. um, A time to meet and greet them, hear about their ministries, encourage them, pray for them. Come early next week, 9 o'clock and enjoy the time with our missionaries. We don't get this moment to reach out to them very often. And I encourage you to come early next week. And then of course, uh, Sunday's is a very special day with missions conference thereafter as well with the uh, the service. As you come into the sanctuary on Sunday, I literally want you to take those gifts that you've got for Kara Feast and put them under the trees that'll be on this stage. Um, some of you don't know Kara, that's okay. Uh, we just wanna bless our missionary. She's pregnant. She's got a baby girl on the way, her first. So we're surprising her on Sunday with a bunch of gifts for a special uh, celebratory baby shower for her. So bring a gift on Sunday, even simple as diapers or wipes would do, and wrap it up and bring it on stage before the service and put it under the tree. And in the morning, we will mention to her that all of those gifts are for her. And last but not least... I know I'm making a bunch of announcements, a lot of plugs, but this is also really important. Estella Harnett and the Coast Kids Choir have done a ton of work getting ready for this special day. In two weeks from today, our Coast Family Christmas, We Three Spies, it's going to be an amazing play. We're going to have lots of yummy treats at the bake-off afterwards, so there's a lot to do in December, but it's all very worth it. I hope that you will put these things on your calendar and make a point to attend. Well enough about announcements. Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to just bless this time. Let's pray. Father, we just want to sit quietly now for a moment and uh, take pause and take a look at you. We've uh, surely had a lot uh, going on even just this morning, certainly this past week with all the festivities and celebrating the Thanksgiving holiday. And now, Lord, we just want to quiet our hearts and kind of reset. Hear from you, Lord. Hear what you would have us to, to learn from today. We pray that your spirit would guide this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Many of you had your television sets on this past week. Your TVs were on this week, but they weren't just looking at the Thanksgiving Day Parade. They were on a lot earlier. They were looking at a little town in Missouri named Ferguson. How many of you uh, turned on the television and watched what was happening in Ferguson? Raise your hands. Most of you. Some of you read about it online or in the newspaper if you still get one of those. I do, once a week. We were trying to make sense of it, all of us, uh, as we... Watched what was unfolding, and uh, surely we all had uh, different and unique reactions. Um, our initial emotions, whatever they were, are their emotions. They they happen upon us. Sometimes they can't even be controlled. Those initial emotions that come to us as we witness events that unfolded, like they did this past week. I myself, trying to make sense of it all, I was struggling um, for a number of days, I just kind of just sat there watching, not even uh, passing judgment either way, just, just trying to take it in and read and absorb and see what people were saying, both on, on all sides of the political spectrum, on all sides of race relations issues, on all sides of, of every which way. And I just sat and absorbed it for a while and, and just decided not to say a word, not to render any kind of verdict myself and as I waited and waited and waited I read and read and read and found everyone's take on it to be really uh, just oftentimes in poor taste everyone was quick to judge quick to jump on a side and I just thought this is there's a better way isn't there a better way and then I read a post online from an NFL football player named Benjamin Watson of the New Orleans Saints, a tight end for the New Orleans Saints. And when I read his post, I, had realized, I realized all along why I waited and waited and waited before I responded to what, Ferguson, what happened in Ferguson. And I've asked Jonathan Varela to come forward and come on up, John. John's going to read Benjamin Watson of the New Orleans Saints and what he said This is an African-American tight end for the New Orleans Saints. This is what Benjamin had to say about Ferguson.
1: At some point, while I was playing or preparing to play Monday Night Football, the news broke about the Ferguson decision. After trying to figure out how I felt, I decided to write it down. Here are my thoughts. I'm angry. I'm angry because of the stories of injustice that have been passed down for generations. They seem to be continuing before our very eyes. I'm frustrated. Pop culture, music, and movies, they glorify these types of police-citizen altercations. They promote an invincible attitude that continues to get young men killed in real life, away from the safety of movie sets and music studios. I'm fearful because, in the back of my mind, I know that although I'm a law abiding citizen, I could still be looked upon as a threat by those who don't know me. So I will continue to have to go the extra mile to earn the benefit of the doubt. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed because of the looting, the violent protests the law-breaking, they only confirm in the minds of many and validate the stereotypes and thus the inferior treatment. I'm sad. Another young life was lost from his family. The racial divide has widened. A community is in shambles. Accusations, insensitivity, hurt, and hatred are boiling over we may never know the truth about what happened that day. I'm sympathetic. I know I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what happened. Maybe Darren Wilson acted within his rights and duty as a police officer. Maybe he killed Michael Brown in self-defense like any of us would have done in that circumstance. Now he has to fear the backlash against himself and his loved ones when he was only doing his job. What a horrible thing to endure. Or maybe Michael Brown was provoked, and that ignited a series of events that led Darren Wilson to murder the young man, just to prove a point. I'm offended. I'm offended because of the insulting comments that I've seen. They're not only insensitive, but they're dismissive of the painful experiences of others. I'm confused. I don't know why it's so hard to obey a policeman. You will not win. And I don't know why some policemen abuse their power. Power is a responsibility, not a weapon to brandish or lord over the populace. I'm introspective. Sometimes I wanna take our side. Without looking at the facts. Sometimes I feel like it's us against them. Sometimes I'm just as prejudiced as people I point fingers at. It's not right. How can I look at white skin and make assumptions, but not want assumptions made about me? It's not right. I'm hopeless. I've lived long enough to expect things like this and that they're going to continue to happen. I'm not surprised. And at some point, my little children are going to inherit the weight of being a minority and all that that entails. I'm hopeful because I know that while we still have race issues in America, we enjoy a much different normal than those of our parents and grandparents. I see it in my personal relationships with teammates, with friends and mentors. It's a beautiful thing. I'm encouraged. Because ultimately, the problem is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and we lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason why we riot, we loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through his son Jesus, and with it, a transformed heart and mind. One that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what's truly important in every human being. The cure for the Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Eric Gardner tragedies is not education or exposure. It's the gospel. So finally, I'm encouraged because the gospel gives mankind.
0: Would that that man be conducting services today at the church service uh, where Michael Brown's parents are attending right now? Would that that man lead America through time of understanding and comprehension of what's happened would that that man see the mob and the chaos and the violence and the rioting and the looting would would that that man be the one to rise up and to speak to speak truth to power to show that one can be fearless with the truth in the face of the mob. The title of this message is Fearless in the Face of the Mob. And it is, in my opinion, very providential that the Lord uh, has us where he has us in Luke 12 today. I did not select this text this week. Pastor Tom and I prayed and deliberated over placing this text on this date many months ago. And here we are, November 30th, the Sunday after Ferguson, and we're reading about a mob, a mob scene. Stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so that they trampled one another, he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, my disciples, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You may be seated. A little bit of a backdrop where we are in in Luke 12. So here we are, Luke 12. We had just finished up Luke 11 um, a couple weeks ago. And the the, the backdrop, the scene is, is that we are in a village, first century Palestinian uh, Jewish village, uh, likely the village of, of Bethany though it could have been a different one. But that's where Mary and Martha lived, and and some of of these stories are the outflow of what happened between Mary and Martha and then that village. So here we are, first century Jewish village, maybe Bethany is the name of it. And Jesus is critiquing, denouncing, casting uh, light to the evil and wickedness and sinfulness of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. All throughout the end of chapter 11, he is casting woe upon woe. He's saying, woe to these Pharisees because they do this, this, and this. And woe to these lawyers because they do this, this, and this. Jesus is spending a, a great portion of his time at this point, at this juncture in the village, calling out the wickedness and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. Right in front of him, by the way. They're gathered around him. And he's calling them out for their wicked intent, intentions, for their evil character, for their oppressive hearts. And the Pharisees and the lawyers of the day. They did not take too kindly to it. If you read at the end of chapter 11, it says that yeah, he said these things to them and the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine Jesus about many things, lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him and something he might say that they might accuse him. They had a venomous reaction to what Jesus was doing at the end of chapter 11. They hated him for it. And as they received Jesus' critique, they lashed out back at him, and then they did something else. They began to stir up the crowds, stir up the village. Verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. Read that. An innumerable multitude of people gathered together so that they trampled one another. When you see the word innumerable in in this New King James text, which I've listed here on your outline, this is the New King James, some of your other Bibles, maybe you've got the New American Standard or NIV or some other translation, you might see the words, the word thousands of people. That's based on a difference of manuscripts. Some of the manuscripts of Luke had uh, one Greek word, another had another Greek word. If it's the, if it's the, the word for thousands, which is uh, the Greek word murios, it actually means 10,000. It's a group of 10,000. That's what murios means. So it's possible that we're looking at a crowd of at least thousands, if not up to 10,000 people. Go to a baseball game up at Angel Stadium, that's a quarter of the stadium of people that are gathered around Jesus and the disciples watching and witnessing what is taking place. This is a mob of people. 10,000 people stirred up by the Pharisees and religious leaders. They've all surrounded Jesus and the 12. Luke says that they're trampling upon one another. How do you suppose the disciples are feeling right about now? I would venture to say this is a terrifying experience for them. I would venture to say that nowhere up until this point in the Gospels have the disciples been around this many people, with perhaps the exception of the feeding of the 5,000 who were happy to be there, although they were hungry. But here, 10,000 people who are being stirred up, who are being riled up by their leaders no less, religious leaders no less. Sound familiar? We all reacted differently to the verdict in Ferguson. Some of us were angry, some of us were sad, some of us were sympathetic, some of us were confused, or a combination of so many of these emotions, as so beautifully expressed, by the way, by Benjamin Watson. But one thing, one thing that I think I lost out of Ferguson, and I think that much of our, our, the people witnessing Ferguson lost, was the notion of fear of terror. Our 24-7 news cycle stirs up the mob mentality providing a worldwide platform for violence. But the deep and awful fear that many experienced during the Ferguson riots was often lost. So perhaps, perhaps by way of illustrating what the disciples were experiencing right here in Luke 12 perhaps we should consider one other mob story. It's in your bulletin. Open up your bulletin, right in the middle. We do this, every two weeks we update this. It's called Persecution Alert. I want to read another mob story for you. Under Global Missions, right in the middle, Persecution Alert. In, Puj- in Punjab, Pakistan, Shama and Shahzad, pictured there, a, Christ- a young Christian couple, they were in their mid-20s, were put to death for allegedly desecrating the Quran. Their investigation, trial, and sentencing it was all by mob. Shama had disposed of papers while cleaning out her recently deceased father in law's trunk. These papers may have been pages of the Quran, but Shama could not read Arabic. The Muslim village clergy were informed. And the atrocity was announced through the loudspeakers of the village. The couple was then confined in an office. On November the 4th, Shema, who was four months pregnant, and her husband were attacked by a frenzied mob, beaten severely, dragged through the village by a tractor. They were then burned alive in the brick kiln where Shazad has worked since he was a child. Please pray for comfort for their families and surviving children. Pray also for Pakistan's Christians. They're frequent targets of the country's blasphemy law. That's a mob. That's fear. That is terrifying, gripping fear. Fear that I think we we lost sight of in Ferguson for the people that were caught up in the rioting and the looting for people that continue to live in fear as a result of what happened in Ferguson. But that's a mob. It's funny, I don't, I don't remember the media reporting on that mob. Fear. Fear. Fear that you never want to experience. Terrifying and awful. I submit to you in Luke 12, the disciples were terrified. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. 10,000 people of the village gathering around them. Just after their teacher, Jesus, had spent a number of, of moments hurling criticism after criticism after criticism at their religious leaders. The disciples are terrified. The religious leaders were stoking the flames of the masses. They were trampling upon one another to watch the drama unfold, some of them hoping things would get ugly. And the disciples, helpless and scared, look at Jesus, and, and you can just imagine they're, they're looking at him saying, you've got to get us out of this. You need to get us out of this mess. Jesus, the mob has come for us. You need to get us out of here. And Jesus sees the fear in their eyes and this is what he does at the end of verse 1. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, he looked straight at them. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What? Jesus has just harshly criticized the motives and the behavior of the religious leaders of Israel at the end of chapter 11. The Pharisees respond with vehemence, beckoning all the villagers to come, gather around, we're gonna do something about this. 10,000 strong. The situation is tense. The disciples look at Jesus. Please, Lord, you need to get us out of this. And Jesus says, don't worry, I got this. See these guys? They're a bunch of hypocrites! not what I was thinking Jesus that's not that wasn't what we were hoping for the first thing out of Jesus's mouth is another denunciation of the character of the Pharisees now that's a man who is fearless Jesus is fearless the disciples terrified, Jesus, completely fearless, which begs the question, how is it possible to be fearless in the face of a mob? I think Jesus gives some hints about how to do that in the following verses. Look at verse 2. He goes on to say, remember, he's talking to the disciples. He's looking at the disciples first of all, Luke indicates. These words are for the disciples, the 12. This is what he says in verse 2. He says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken, you disciples have spoken in the dark, will be heard in the light. Whatever you have spoken in the ear, in inner rooms, will be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus says, look, there's a lot of people. He's speaking to his disciples. He's saying, look, there's a lot of people here. And all these people, they're trying to censor me. They've gathered in mass at the behest of their religious elites. And they're trying to keep me from stating what is true. They're trying to keep me from telling what is true about these religious leaders. They're trying to keep me from telling what is true about their character, about the condition of their hearts. They're trying to silence me. They want to cover up the truth. But there is nothing covered that will not one day be revealed. They can't conceal the truth forever. They can't hide it. There is nothing hidden that will not one day be known. And in verse 3, I imagine Jesus now zeroing in on his disciples' faces, these terrified faces. And in verse 3, he says, Therefore, whatever you, you disciples, have spoken in the dark, it'll be heard in the light. In other words, you're afraid right now to speak the truth because of the mob. You're afraid right now to speak the truth of the gospel, about the nature of man, about the wickedness of these leaders. You are afraid to speak the truth because of the mob. You believe the truth, but you're afraid to speak it unless you're in a safe place, unless you're in a private place, unless you're in a dark place where you can whisper it in the ear, in the inner room. But Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid. You have the truth. In light of the truth, in light of the truth, the light of the truth, the light of the truth of God, it will go out. It will be proclaimed. It will prevail. It will succeed. You don't have to be afraid. It is the truth. It's not to be kept secret. It's not to be hidden. It is to be proclaimed on the housetops. You might think of John 8.32 where Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. He might have amended that a little bit here in Luke. I listed on your outline there if you want to take some notes at the very bottom of the second page, or the very top of the second page under John 8.32. I might have amended here for the purposes of Luke and say this, if you know and speak The truth, the truth will set you free for truth will ultimately prevail. I'll say that again. If you know and you speak the truth, the truth will set you free for truth will ultimately prevail. In John 8, knowledge was sufficient. Here in Luke chapter 12, he's talking about knowing it but then speaking it. Speak it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't don't hide it. Don't cover it. Proclaim it on the housetops. You'll be set free from fear. Who are you afraid to speak the truth to? Who are you afraid to speak the truth to? Who are you afraid to witness to? Who are you afraid to confront with the truth about someone's sinful condition, about their need for a Savior, or their need to get right with God. Who are you afraid to address? Jesus says, don't be afraid. You have the truth. You know the truth. Now speak it. Besides, what are you afraid of anyway? Look at verse four. What are you afraid of? Verse four, and I say to you, my friends, disciples, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body But after that, there's no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Notice the words, my friends, in verse 4. Jesus is still looking straight at the disciples. 10,000 strong, and he's zeroing in on the 12 and saying, This is for you. Listen. Listen. What are you afraid of? Afraid of these men? Why? What power do they have over you? What power do they have that is greater than what you already have within you by the Holy Spirit? They have an artificial power of man. You have the real power, the truth of God. What's the worst they can do to you? Kill you? Don't you remember my promise? That when this life is over, you will enter eternity with my father in heaven because you have believed in me. So what exactly are you afraid of? The most they can do, the most these men can do to you is take your earthly life. That's the most they can do. There's nothing more that they can do. So don't fear them. You have more important things to fear than a rash mob of men. The only one, the only one that you and all of mankind should fear is the Lord, for he holds the key to eternity. Heaven and hell are at stake with him. So take the fear that you are directing toward the mob and put that fear toward the Lord. Have a healthy fear of God. It's essential to being a disciple of Christ. Think of, the person, think of the person that you're most afraid of. Does your fear of that person outweigh your fear and respect and reverence toward the Lord? It shouldn't. We are not to fear men like we fear the Lord. We are not to fear what others might do, could do to us. We are to first put our eyes, set our eyes on the Lord and be right before him. We're to fear him. Show him a healthy fear. But that's not all we are to do toward our Lord. He's not just a God who is to be feared by his people. He's also a God who loves you and who can be trusted. Look at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. It's not just fear. That's not your only relationship to God, Jesus says. You should fear him, but he loves you. He's loyal to you. He values you. He cares for you. So fear him because he is a loving God who wants to be in good relationship with you. What a stark contrast in light of the raging masses that had gathered around Jesus and the disciples. They spewing hate and Jesus speaking about the love and grace of the Father. Though the disciples feel like ducks in a pond, God has not forgotten them. He remembers them. He values them. And he just, the Lord just wants to see. He's waiting to see if the disciples value him enough to speak the truth that they already know in their hearts. God wants to know, will the disciples boldly confess the truth in the face of 10,000 strong? Or will they shrink back when times get tough. Verse 8. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me, whoever testifies of me, whoever speaks of me, speaks the truth, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You know those moments? It's the moment when God gives you a perfect opportunity to be a witness for him. All eyes are on you. You feel the tension in the room in with that one person or maybe with a group of people or maybe in front of a great multitude. You feel that you feel that conviction that you're you're to say something right now, that you're to speak the truth, that you're to share the gospel, that you're to give words of peace that come from Christ. You know those opportunities when you have a chance to speak the truth. And you also know what it means to miss those opportunities, to remain silent, or perhaps even to willfully distance yourself from what you know to be true. It's those moments that the Lord is really watching us, wondering will He confess me? Will she testify of me? Or will they deny me with their lips? Will they deny me with their silence? To those who fear God more than man and thus confess, speak of the truth of the gospel, even in difficult circumstances, Jesus says to that person, he who confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. I asked the question on your outline here, what, what is this confession? What does it mean for Jesus to confess us in heaven? What does it mean for Jesus to confess us in heaven? What is this confession that Jesus will do for us before the angels? Some have this kind of knee-jerk reaction to this statement. It's amazing. You you read commentators after commentary after commentary, and some people have this knee-jerk reaction that, aha! This is about eternal salvation. This is about heaven and hell. This is, this is the moment right here when you stand before uh, the, the, the masses, the people, a group, or even one-on-one, and you fail to confess Jesus in that moment. Once you've failed to confess Jesus in that moment when God is watching, psh, you've missed it. Some say that verses 8 and 9, let's read them again, Verses 8 and 9. I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Some say, aha, eternal salvation is at stake. This is Jesus' way at the end of the age when it's all said and done. This is Jesus' moment to confer or not confer eternal salvation upon us based on our witness. I respond to that and say that hardly, hardly seems accurate in light of what we know to be true about our great salvation. Jesus is quite clear elsewhere in the Gospels, indelibly clear, that eternal salvation is conferred the moment we believe in Christ. On your outline, John five twenty four. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, past tense, everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, from death to life. We are justified, friends, the moment we believe in Christ. We go from death to life the moment we hear the word and believe its message, the gospel message. That's why Paul also says later in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 that we can have peace with God at that moment. He says in Romans 5 1, therefore having been justified by faith, the moment we have faith, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God we have it it's ours it can't be taken away friends Jesus does not wait until he has an audience of angels in heaven at the end of the age to decide whether or not we will receive entrance into his kingdom that is something completely unsubstantiated by the Word of God eternal life is given now to all who believe it is not given with caveats it is not given with conditions it is given freely to any man woman or child who puts their faith in Jesus Christ amen so if eternal life is not at stake in Luke 12:8 then what is what is what's at stake Jesus because these words look awfully consequential to me. What is at stake? Also, I say to you, verse 8, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of heaven. I believe the answer is found in the doctrine of rewards, which is so infrequently talked about throughout Christendom. But the Bible makes it indelibly clear, text after text, both in the Gospels, the Epistles, all throughout the word. The, the Bible makes it indelibly clear that, though all, though while, that while all who believe enter heaven, not all who enter heaven receive the same reception. Let me say that again. While all who believe will enter heaven, not all who enter heaven will receive the same reception. What do I mean by that? Oh, this is taken from a variety of texts. Uh, we could point to, I'll list three. Matthew 16, 27, right on your outline again. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, with his angels, note that, and then he will reward each according to his works. According to his what? His works. Is salvation by works? No, he's not talking about salvation. Salvation's by faith. So what's Jesus rewarding by works? That's something different now, isn't it? The Gospels make clear time and again when the Son of Man comes, this is not just about heaven and hell. Once, once we've demonstrated who's in heaven, it's about who is going to be rewarded and who might not have the kind of inheritance that they could have. Luke 9.26, also on your outline. Whoever is ashamed Jesus says, else, earlier in Luke, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy, and of the holy angels. Notice again the mention of angels. And again, there's a knee-jerk reaction. Some people look at that Luke 9 text and say, that, that's about hell. They're ashamed because they're going to hell. Not so. Not so. I give you John, 1 John 2.28, the last text there, which is written, 1 John 2.28, 2 28, to Christians. How do we know? The words little children in the in the verse, which throughout the the, the book of first John, when, when John uses that term, he is directing his teaching to Christians. This is what he says. And now, little children, abide in Christ. That when Christ appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Guess what, Christian? Some of you will have confidence at his coming. Some of you will be ashamed at his coming. And everywhere in between. Not heaven and hell. Heaven is already ours if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Heaven is ours. The reception that we receive when we get there. Whether the Lord honors us, confesses us, says, angels, look at this man. Angels, look at this woman. I want to tell you about what she did in my name. Will you get that kind of a reception when this life is over? Or will there be a measure of shame? Luke, on your outline, Luke 12:8 is not about heaven and hell. It's about the reception Jesus and the angels give us when we get to heaven. The reception. Just as accolades and rewards await the one who fearlessly confesses Jesus in this life, so also shame and denial, denial of reward follow those who refrain from testifying of the Lord verse 9 but he who denies me when 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 there's 10,000 strong when the, when when there's a mob or even when there's a group or even when it's one on one and you feel that conviction to speak to speak the truth to share the gospel to have an opportunity right there it's right before you speak do it and you f- fail you stay silent you stay quiet willfully or ignorantly verse 9 He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Coming on the heels of verse 8, what Jesus denies in verse 9 is not heaven, but reward in heaven. And with that denial comes shame, 1 John 2.28. Shame at the return of Christ. now, All of this, verse 1 all the way to verse 9, directed straight at the disciples. But Jesus knows that others are listening in. 10,000 strong are listening in. And so verse 10 is unique in this subset. Verse 10, Jesus speaks a word that uh, I think he knows is going to be heard around him. This is what it says. He goes on to say, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. It was the the Pharisees, some of them, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who had already committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the early part of Luke 11. We covered it earlier. They were the ones who had witnessed Jesus take a demon out of a man They were the ones who had seen that miracle and had pointed at it and said, that's the work of Satan, of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They were the ones who pointed to the work of God and called it a work of Satan. And Jesus says plainly to them, for all to hear, once your eyes have seen the power of God and the hardness of your heart sets in and you call the work of God the work of Satan, then you've proven yourself incapable of receiving the forgiveness of God and you will be condemned. They've already blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It will not be forgiven them. Another harsh critique of the religious leaders. But to the rest of the mob, the first part of verse 10 applied, to the rest of the mob who had merely been riled up, riled up to revile Jesus, though they barely knew him, Jesus showed compassion to them, and in the face of their insults, he made it plain that forgiveness and life could still be theirs if they would just turn from their sin and turn to God in faith. The crowd, 10,000 strong, had not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They had not seen that miracle and called it the work of Satan. That was specific to the work of the Pharisees. The mob, instead, were hurling insults like Leah Jesus, the Son of Man. And Jesus says in verse 10, he says in verse 10, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. In other words, you guys have another chance. You have another chance. Though you gather around me to insult me and revile me, you all in the mob have another chance to turn from your sin, to turn to me in faith. As for the disciples, still riddled with fear, Jesus offers a final parting word. Verse 11. Now when they bring you, disciples, to the synagogue and magistrates and to the authorities, don't worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit is with you. He'll be with you when you're called upon to testify of the gospel of grace. So don't worry. Pray. Lean on Him. He'll put courage in your heart. He'll put words in your mouth. Words that you don't even think was po- that you didn't even think was possible. The authorities, the mob, the masses, the people that you're afraid of who try their best sometimes to trample you, to trample the seed, to trample the gospel, to trample the word of God, even the Son of God. But you take heart, for he that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is stirring up 10,000 strong. You can be fearless, in the face of the mob, but it will take courage to know the truth and to speak the truth by the Holy Spirit. When you do, the truth will set you free and hopefully it will also set others free from sin and death. Benjamin Watson, the tight end of the New Orleans Saints, responding to Ferguson, ended with hope because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth can give us hope. The truth can set us free. You know the truth. Speak the truth when you are given opportunity to confess Jesus before men. When you do, Jesus will confess you before the angels in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to confess you. We want to testify of you. We don't want to shrink back in fear. The disciples were terrified. In Luke 12, later, Peter would fail at your greatest hour of trial Jesus he would fail to confess you yet you didn't deny heaven to Peter you gave him another chance you gave him more opportunities to confess you Lord and later Peter would go on to become the rock of the church we have certainly Lord failed in the past to confess you at times we thank you for your grace and we pray that when the next time comes we'll be ready humble leaning on your holy spirit for courage and for the right words we love you lord help us to confess you in this life in jesus name amen